Did that right come through? Oh, yes. Okay, well, we're going to start with a little, uh, little quiz first. Um, and the quiz really is, how well do you know your money? Braden, let's have the, the first slide. So uh, this, for the millennials in the room, this is called cash, C-A-S-H. It's what we used to use for money before we had smartphones. Um, next slide. So uh, this is the current $50 bill. We still use this as money. Um, if you've got any and get your hands on it, this, these are plastic notes, polymer notes. Um, next slide, Braden. This is what we used to use back in the last century, back when I was a millennial. Um, and this was, this was paper money, money printed on paper. And the problem with paper money is it was easy to counterfeit. So we invented polymer notes. So I'm going to run you through a few notes uh, and uh, see how well... Uh, see, if you, see if you can pick the fake. See if you can pick the counterfeit notes, the not real money. The test of real money, of course is that you should be able to take it into a bakery, slap it on the counter, and they'll give you a cream bun. So we're going to run all of these through the... This is the federal... This, this is the Reserve Bank official test. Uh, we're going to run these through. So let's have the first slide there. Next slide, Braden. Right. <laughs> Which of these are legal Australian tender? Hands up for the first one. You think you'll get a cream bun on this one? No, worth a try. What about the next one? Is this real money? Hands up if you think this is legal tender. No. Actually, it is legal tender. This was the world's first polymer banknote. It was uh, it's a, it, the Australian $10 note that got released uh, for the bicentennial back in 1988. So this is still legal tender. It didn't last very long because the little hologram in the corner, Australians kept scratching it off with coins. I don't know what they thought. It was a lottery ticket or something. It was going to say, you know... Uh, congratulations, you won $5 or something like that. So they got withdrawn from circulation very quickly. Um, but that's the first polymer note invented here in Australia. Let's have the next slide. Okay, now what about these beauties? Could you slap these down on a counter and get a cream bun? It's, it's a trick question. Because I don't know any bakery in Australia that will give you a cream bun for $2. The bottom one is the original $2 note, right? Used to be, you could get all sorts of things for $2 once upon a time. What about the top one? Anyone is there anyone old enough to recognise the top one? Look, Drew, great, excellent, Blake's got one. Um, that's a one pound note, pre-1966. Yeah. Is that still legal tender? It is. It is. Any, any note issued by the Reserve Bank remains legal tender. The problem is you couldn't slap that down in a bakery and get a cream bun, but if you took it into a bank, they would actually give you $2. That's the official exchange rate. But if you do have a one-pound note, I suggest you don't rush in and change it for $2 because it's worth anything from a few hundred to a few thousand dollars now, but it's still legal tender. Right, rolling right along. Let's have a look at the next one. What about these guys? Anyone... Uh... <laughs> I've got one of these, if, if anyone could break it down for me after the service, come and, come and talk to me. All right. So here's the question. Could you tell a counterfeit $50 bill if you saw it? Next slide. Thanks, Braden. We can follow along now. Well, that's the question being posed by this little letter written by Jude to Christians uh, in the ancient church years ago. 
Could, can you spot the counterfeit Christians among you? So sometime early in the church, um, Jude, his proper name is Judas, which obviously was a name that kind of fell out of favour very quickly, um, some kind of leader in the church in Jerusalem uh, set out to write a letter to the church. And he tells us in the beginning that initially he intended to write about the topic of salvation. But somewhere along the line, he's diverted by a much more pressing uh, issue that's come to his attention. And in verse 4 he says, Certain individuals have secretly slipped in among you. And most of what follows is a pretty shocking denouncement of these people. I mean, he really doesn't hold back in his description of them. You'd expect from the way he goes on about them that they would, they would stand out in the congregation as pretty obvious sinners, pretty obvious fakes. But here's the problem. People who have slipped in secretly aren't obvious. These people aren't standing out. They're hidden. They're, they're in disguise. And this is the problem gripping Jude. There are counterfeit believers at work in the early church and the church can't tell. You know, in practice, these people sound like they're behaving as typical pagans, behaving like people in the general culture did all the time, but at the same time and without missing a beat, they're coming along and participating in the worship life of the church. So they are worshippers along with everybody else, but nobody can spot that they are counterfeit worshippers. In some ways, the biggest threat that's been posed to the church through the ages uh, has not been persecution from the government or competition from other religions or even the rise of our secular atheist culture we live in today. It's always been the threat from within, the threat from counterfeit worship, a counterfeit way of belief and life. Uh, the Apostle Paul was faced with exactly this problem when he wrote the Galatian letter early on. And he talked also about false believers who have sneaked into your ranks. So nothing is more dangerous for the church than losing the ability to identify counterfeit spirituality, counterfeit worship. Losing the ability to tell the difference between what the gospel has to say and what culture has to say. So how do you spot a counterfeit? Well, a chap I know who's a retired bank manager uh, says, well, it's not easy, particularly with the, when the polymer notes came in, and of course that was the whole point of polymer notes, is they're almost impossible to counterfeit. But back in the day of paper bank notes, he said, bank tellers got really good at telling the difference. And he said they could spot a counterfeit note immediately by the way that it felt. Now notice what's in that statement. Notice what's implied. You don't pick a counterfeit note by spending all your time studying counterfeits. You spot a counterfeit by spending all your time handling the real thing. And that's what Jude's doing here. He's revealing counterfeits by bringing us back to the real thing. And there are two key words that are going to anchor us in genuine Christian spirituality here that he structures his letter with. The first is remember, and the second is keep. Let's start with remember. The first time Jude uses the word remember is in verse 5. 
though you already know all this, he says, I want to remind you, literally help you remember. And immediately he plunges us back into the world of the Old Testament scriptures. So he gives us three narratives and then he gives us three characters that help us to frame and recognize false worship for what it really is. Let's look at three narratives first. Um, in verse 5, this is a quick little story from Numbers 14. Um, this is the account of God's devastating judgment on his own people that he had just saved out of Egypt. Just as they were about to enter the promised land, the Israelites lost courage. They, they, they were faced, are faced with the task ahead of them, um, capturing fortified cities, conquering races of people who... The spies that had gone out from them said were much taller, uh, much more numerous. Um, they forgot all about the great things God had just done for them in Egypt. They forgot about his word proclaiming his love for them and they failed to trust God would do as he promised. In fact, they went on to accuse God of being evil. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword. And elsewhere, they actually say, God hates us. Instead of learning to trust, the Israelites were governed by fear. Well, the second narrative in verse 6 is a very obscure little story from Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. And it'd be fantastic if we had lots of time to talk about it. But this is a really strange account of angels who come down and marry human women. And Jewish literature between the Gospels developed an incredible fascination with this story. Um, but the guts of the story involves angels moved by lust who abandon the place they have um, and so become demons. They teach humans witchcraft. Their human wives give birth to a race of giants, to, to titans, not the great heroes of Greek mythology, but terrible perversions of humanity that are set against God and set against God's people, made in his image. So they become the epitome of everything that is ungodly, everything that's out of step with God, everything that's out of step with God's purpose and order. So Jude takes a quote from one of these Jewish stories um, that you can actually find in the non-biblical book of One Enoch. And he summarizes the final outcome of this story. He says, in the end, God will come at the end of the age with his angelic host and put down this rebellion and bring justice and restore things to order. So here's the story about angels who left their privileged heavenly position to indulge themselves in the most basic human sin of lust. The third narrative in verse 7 uh, is from Genesis 19. And this is where angels go to the city of Sodom and rescue Abraham's nephew Lot. As God rains down fiery destruction on the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, even by human standards in the story of Genesis, these cities had sunk to great depths of depravity. And Lot had thrown his lot in with them, so to speak. Instead of leading a nomadic life like his uh, uncle Abraham, uh, a lifestyle that was very dependent upon God to provide for him, he chose the settled security and the seductive pleasures of Sodom. 
Now, in each of these short stories, an alarm should be going off when we hear them. Something has gone badly wrong in every one of them. But we only see what's wrong in these stories by paying attention to the context of the surrounding narratives that we find them in and what that says about how things were meant to go. Israel was meant to enter the promised land and trust God. Angels are, are meant to keep their place, ordained for them by God, and, and worship God and serve him. Lot was meant to learn a life of patient trust, just like Uncle Abraham. So how do you pick the counterfeits? How do you pick that something's wrong here? Well, you become familiar with the real thing, how the story should really go. Well, that brings us now to three characters that we meet in verse 11, who likewise help us understand what genuine worship is all about. Cain, if you remember, in Genesis 3, is a worshipper. Like his brother Abel, he brings an offering to God only he has it rejected for reasons that are not immediately clear to us. But as the narrative goes on, Cain's underlying character is rapidly exposed for us. Because although God's gracious to him, God doesn't reject Cain, he rejects his offering. Cain becomes eaten up by anger and jealousy to the point that he murders his brother Abel. Even so... God continues to deal with Cain. He judges him, but he also shows him mercy. At this point, Cain should have been moved by awe and repentance. But what does he do? Well, he goes on grumbling. He goes on finding fault with God. And what we discover is his offering was unacceptable because his heart was in the wrong place. He had no real interest in trusting God. Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24, is a non-Israelite prophet and soothsayer. He's hired by a foreign king, King Balak, to come and curse the nation of Israel, lest they overrun his territory and defeat him on their way to the Promised Land. But oddly enough, Balaam gets an actual word from the Lord, who warns him not to do this thing. But in the end, Balaam can't help himself because he's been offered an incredible sum of money. So he attempts to go anyway, uh, defy God's word and curse the Israelites. And if you know the story, God opposes him at every step until in the end he has no choice but to speak a blessing upon Israel. Korah in number 16 is particularly instructive. So Korah comes from the Israelite tribe of Levi. This is the, the tribe set apart to work as priests. Korah is not a part of the specific clan that God has chosen to lead worship at the central tabernacle. He's not part of the, the clan that Moses and Aaron belong to. He's got his own job to do, but Korah's not happy with this. He complains. And he comes up with this twisted piece of theology that insists it's everybody's right to conduct the priestly liturgies in the sanctuary. Despite what God has said, it's my right to do this. So he starts as if he should work like a high priest. And in the end, the ground opens up and follows Korah and all of those, um, swallows Korah and all of those who are following him. You should read it sometime, riffer of the story. All three characters in these stories outwardly appear to be the real thing. They're all coming to worship. 
Cain's bringing offerings of lambs. Balaam is seeking the word of the Lord as a prophet. Korah is apparently wanting to worship God at the sanctuary. But all of them are condemned as heretics. Cain is ruled by dangerous emotions, not the fear of the Lord. Balaam is a prophet, sure enough, but he's a prophet for hire. He's motivated by money. And Korah wants to enhance his own reputation. It's not enough to do the job God's given him. He wants someone else's job. And so we come to recognize the essential counterfeit character of these people by comparing them with the genuine article. Abel's offering and worship was genuine worship. Balaam was motivated by money, but Israel was led by Moses. And Moses proved himself to be a prophet who on more than one occasion was willing to not only intercede for the people, but offered his own life in place of the people, that they might be spared from God's judgment. Korah is just simply ambitious, he's self-appointed, he's unrepentant. Aaron, the true high priest, was most of the time none of those things. He's a fairly modest character. So Jude exposes the character of these sneaked-in false worshippers he's worried about by setting them into the context of God's creation and salvation story. And he uses the word remember. Remember what God has done. Remember what God is like. Then you will see the true character of these people. They're like rebellious Israel. They're like fallen angels. They're like pagan Sodom. They are Cain's, Balaam's and Korah's. The principle operating here is Get familiar with the real thing, and then you'll know the counterfeit when you see it. Well, the second time Jude uses the word remember is in verse 17. Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ said beforehand. So we've moved from remember the Old Testament now to remember the New Testament witness. And so from the teaching of the apostles, again well known to the early church, Jude sums up his characterization of these counterfeit worshippers in verse 17 and 18, calling them scoffers who follow their own godless desires. People who follow mere natural instinct. Now that's exactly what our three narratives and our three characters revealed about the motivation of counterfeit worshippers. They were motivated by fear, lust, pride, anger, monetary gain, reputation. Jude exposes this way of life for what it is. It's godless. It's, it's a life shaped without reference to God. It's without any reference to any ultimate authority. And so it's a life shaped entirely by reference to me, myself, my interests, my desires and ambitions, all of which often get labelled in our culture as my needs or my rights. Because it turns out that counterfeit worshippers aren't non-worshippers, they're ultimately self-worshippers. And so Jude's whole anxiety for his congregation arises from the fact that they cannot recognize counterfeit worshippers among them because they can't tell the difference between what is truly Christian and what is merely cultural. So what Jude calls a 
godless life, our culture calls simply normal. What everyone's doing. What's just simply human. This is simply how people are wired. This is how people are born. This is just natural human behaviour. There can't be anything wrong with that, surely. And so here's where our trouble lies. We're no different, really. We're at the same risk as countless generations of Christian believers who have gone before us. Because in every age, the church has had to struggle to distinguish between the gospel of Jesus and the norms of the culture they are growing up in. And and the great temptation for Christians of every age is simply to be swept along by uh, a culture external to the teaching and the culture of Jesus. And so as a result, we find the church is often embroiled in scandal and injustice. The church often behaves no better than anybody else, uh, heading off to crusades, uh, backing this dictator or that king, this president, this Nazi party, uh, not speaking out against genocide, rubber stamping things like apartheid. I mean, you know the stories. You know the things that non-Christians rapidly identify as um, uh, the Achilles heel of the church, things we have done wrong in the past, and they're right. And behind each of those instances in our history are people who are outwardly Christian in presentation, often wielding the authority of the church and being in prominent positions, but inwardly motivated by the basic instincts of sin. Fear, lust, pride, anger, greed, thirst for reputation. And Jude is warning us not to go down this road. This is a dead end. Verse 12 and 13, he uses five exquisite metaphors that run home the bankruptcy of counterfeit worship. These people, he said, who have snuck in among you are blemishes. Um, This is a difficult word to translate, but it originally meant a a submerged reef, the sort of thing that a ship would uh, would get wrecked on. These people, he says, are shepherds who don't tend the sheep, they just feed themselves. Uh, These people are twice dead trees, not only fruitless but uprooted. They're foaming wild waves driven any which way by the wind. They're wandering stars, which is to say unreliable stars, stars you can't navigate by, and so stars that are destined for utter darkness. So at the end of all this, we have to ask ourselves, what does Jude think? true worship looks like and what motivates it and how should we as the church be different? And the answer is a little surprising because up to this point we've had a pretty thoroughgoing description of godless living, life motivated by ungodly desires following mere natural instincts. Jude uses the word godless several times to describe these people he's worried about. But he doesn't use the opposite term to describe Christians. He doesn't use the word godly, as though the difference between the ungodly and the godly is simply a difference between motivations and behaviours. Because what he's telling us is to be a Christian is about more than the opposite of being driven by fear, lust and so on. What, Jude says, makes a Christian different? Well, he says Christians have the Holy Spirit. 
He says as much in verse 19. These sneaked-in counterfeit worshippers do not have the Spirit. But Christians do, because he takes it for granted that when we pray, we're praying in or by the Holy Spirit in verse 20. This is exactly the same answer that the Apostle Paul gave the Galatians uh, in response to the problem of false worshippers in their presence. In fact, Paul's whole definition of how you tell the difference is that Christians have the Holy Spirit. And that has a practical outworking. Paul says, we then are the people who now walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, or fall in line with the Spirit, or are led by the Spirit. However you understand those phrases, um, this much is certainly true. True worship is first and foremost relational. It's not defined by a list of behaviours we do or don't do. It's about, put, uh, it's, it's about our encounter with the living God. So if remember is the word that Jude is using to wake us up to a counterfeit way of worship... Um, remember as the word that Jude uses to plunge us into the scriptures to keep us awake to who God is and what God is doing. Remember as the word that keeps us handling uh, genuine money so we can spot a counterfeit. Um, the second word he uses, the word that helps uh, tell us what the Christian life is, is the word keep. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's Jude's basic take-home message, right? Don't be sucked in to the way of these phonies. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves, which means uh, hold on to yourselves, guard yourselves, watch yourselves. The other way you might put it is um, the, to use the word remain, hang on, stay put. Now the interesting thing about the use of this word is Jude tells us that we are both commanded to, in verse 1, keep ourselves, and also told, in verse 24, that we are kept. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a hold of us. We're not doing anything here that God's not already doing for us. Colossians 3.14, sorry, Philippians 3.14, Paul says, to the Philippians, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So keep is the word Jude uses to fix our feet in the gospel. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The word characterizing counterfeit worship in Jude is the word godless, ungodly, but the word characterizing genuine worship in Jude is love. Three times he addresses his listeners as beloved. Uh, in the NIV that gets translated as dear friends, but actually he's reminding them they are the beloved of God, not simply dear friends. Um, and in his greeting, as in the close of the letter, he reminds his listeners who they actually are in Christ. He says, we are called, we are loved, we are kept, verse 1. Verse 2, we have received mercy, peace, love in abundance. Verses 21 to 25, we've been shown mercy, 
We eagerly await eternal life in Christ. We are kept for his presence. We are kept for great joy. The term that binds all of these things together is this word love. Even the word mercy in the New Testament now is a translation of a, the, the strong biblical concept from the Old Testament, which is a description of God's unfailing love. God's mercy is rooted in his love. And so that brings us to the real thing. 1 John 4, verses 9 to 10. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jude is a letter of warning against heresy and malpracticing Christians, counterfeits whose presence is not always obvious, but nevertheless poses a threat. And if we're not alert to the real possibility, the real danger of false substitute spiritualities masquerading as genuine Christian spirituality, then we're at risk of being duped. But here's the thing. The central business of the Christian life is not to spend our time looking for counterfeits, not hunting out heretics or questioning other people's orthodoxy. The central business of the Christian life is keeping ourselves in God's love, keeping in the way of love expressed in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, keeping in the way of love that God has for the church through the gift of the Holy Spirit, keeping in the way of living as beloved Sons in Christ. So Jude's not asking us to set up an inquisition here and start questioning everyone's credentials. He's fixing our attention once again on what God has done. Remember and summoning us to keep in the way of Christ. And that way, Jude keeps us from being duped by counterfeits by keeping us handling the real thing. Amen.